The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Matt Peterson, Ideas Editor at Barron's. My guest today is Christopher Smart, Chief Global Strategist and Head of the Barron's Investment Institute. Welcome, Christopher. Great to be with you, Matt. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Uh, so our topic today is how the global order is unraveling, but it seems like a few threads might be getting pulled at home. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, was indicted yesterday. Barron's reported this morning that markets are shrugging off the news. Is that the right reaction? I think so. I mean, the extreme extremism that has now suffused U.S. politics in the last few years, I think those of us who've invested internationally and particularly in emerging markets over our careers, I think we wonder about how other countries look at us, a country that is, you know, indicting its president, um, uh, has impeached its president, uh, has demonstrators in the Capitol. Uh, those are not things that you uh, generally use as markers to reassure you that it is a safe place or destination for investment. Uh, but having said that, you know, the, you know, regardless of the merits of this particular case, the very fact that the court system does seem to be working and is proceeding uh, is a reflection of the strength, I think, of a lot of our institutions in spite of what has been, what has felt like a, a pretty significant deterioration of the of the rhetoric over the past few years. So maybe that is the tiny silver lining in this particular uh, in this particular story, and one reason why markets are are indeed looking past it. Yeah, just to dwell on this for one second, we were thinking this morning about what this means for the debt ceiling fight, just something you wrote about in your last column. You, you have any thoughts on whether this makes this harder, easier, no change? I think on the margin, it makes it harder. I think we're all proceeding on a base case that a debt ceiling deal will, will get done at some point in this summer or the fall, uh, but that it won't get done until the very last minute because neither side has a has an interest in um, in compromising too soon because it'll look like they, you know, left something on the table. Uh, but the risks, you know, are clearly mounting that will not just sort of approach that X date, but actually go past it. Uh, and the president and Secretary Yellen have been talking about, you know, the risks involved in that. I, I do wonder if it passes that X date by a few days, whether, you know, chaos will really ensue or whether um, investors globally will look at this as just another uh, uh, example of extremism in U.S. politics. But in fact, you're not going to sell U.S. treasuries because there's not really anything uh, that presents an alternative for you to buy. You, you're also sure that you're going to get paid at some point, uh, even, there might be, even though there might be some delays. So I think there'll be some unhappiness in markets and some more volatility, but I'm not too sure that this is going to lead to um, chaos and disaster that that some have predicted. I will say, you know, the danger in all of this is that having crossed the line this time around, it becomes a habit. And that over time can lead to chaos and disaster if it becomes a, a habit every time there's a debt ceiling that we're not just going into these um, special procedures that the Treasury uses to stay within the debt limit, but in fact has to 
scramble uh, for for several days of you know prioritizing what it what it chooses to pay. Right. Let's bring the rest of the world into this conversation. So the president of Taiwan was in New York yesterday. Uh, she's traveling through South America and then is going to swing back through LA next week, I think, and is likely to meet with Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House. And of course, last time a Speaker of the House got involved with Taiwan, the Chinese got very upset. Do you think that we are headed for another round of escalation between the world's two largest economies? Probably. I mean, I think we do this dance every time a Taiwanese leader comes to the U.S. and changes planes and we kind of play it down on the one hand and there's nothing to see here. On the other hand, of course, um, she's making statements and greeting crowds and meeting potentially with Speaker McCarthy. And so there's obviously um, uh, uh, an effort on the part of the U.S. and U.S. politicians to try and support her as president of Taiwan. and. Um, reassert our views that Taiwan is an independent country is is uh, and and that its system of government should be respected and Taiwan and China and Taiwan should find a peaceful way of um, settling their differences to answer your question directly does this help in terms of the atmospherics and the relationship with China probably not but I think it's not something that will be um, I don't think it's sort of a dramatic departure of what we've seen uh, in the past in the past few years yeah. What what is that trajectory that we're on now with US China? How do you how do you characterize where we're headed and really the risks to markets here? Well, I think the trajectory is is not good. Um, whether it is terrible or leading inevitably to war is, I think, not necessarily the case. But you know, in the past five or ten years, clearly there has been a deterioration in the uh, in the relationship, the initial hope that China joining the World Trade Organization, reaching out into the into the global economy, becoming a more uh, integrated trading partner and financial partner, um, uh, was what drove a lot of the relationship. You know, since the late '90s and early 2000s, um, what we have seen, I think, is, you know some resistance to uh, sharing the stage with China, which I think, you know, Europe and China, Europe and the US have been saying they're happy to share the stage with China, but only reluctantly and only under certain conditions. I think we've also seen China be much more assertive in ways that hurt its own case um, and, and have created more tensions and more uh, resistance to its rise than, than there should be. And so now you've also had a deterioration in both the U.S. domestic political system and the Chinese domestic political uh, uh, system, where where there is this uh, sense that the problems of the world are really due to the other side, and that makes it much harder to negotiate uh, a path forward. Uh, the hope, of course, is that you know we get back at least onto a trajectory of talking to one another and exchanging views and having conversations and summits between leaders and cabinet members. Um, but of course, that got pushed back when when we had the um, the mysterious uh, balloon fly across across uh, across the U.S. So it's a very unpredictable path forward, and I'm afraid not a you know headed in a worse direction rather than a better one. Yeah, you mentioned this deterioration here and in China, and I think you wrote a column recently that I thought sort of summed up the sense of deterioration nicely, which I'll quote from. You wrote that. If the world, if it feels like the world's geopolitical fabric is unraveling fast, 
rest assured it isn't, but the global order is unraveling slowly and investors need to understand just how political disorder could swamp economic growth in the years ahead. Okay, so tell me what you mean by that and, and bring Russia into the picture here. Well, I think it's a it was an effort to kind of provide context to the daily headlines. I mean, we've had this, you know, uh, very uh, alarming series of reports, obviously from the front in Ukraine, between, you know, the violence that continues between Russian and Ukrainian troops. We have had reports of China potentially sending um, weapons to Russia or military supplies, which appear to be uh, more, you know, prospective warnings rather than anything that's actually happening right now. Um, we've had, uh, you know, escalating rhetoric by Speaker McCarthy, by President Biden, uh, by Xi Jinping as he gets re, uh, uh, as he was um, re-elected as uh, for another term as China's paramount leader. Uh, and so I think if you're an investor, uh, this is, you know, a, a sense that something bad is about to happen. Um, and particularly when you come off of what's happened in Ukraine that caught a lot of us by surprise more than a year ago, um, we as investors, markets tend to, you know, immediately look back at the previous data point and project it on the next data point and assume that because Russia invaded Ukraine, that China is about to do the same in Taiwan. Uh, my point is only that things are, again, deteriorating and unraveling, but it's probably going to be over a much longer uh, time horizon. And it gives us some chance of at least slowing or managing uh, events. Um, the US-Chinese economic relationship is, of course, far different, far greater importance to both sides. Um, uh, we, you know, even as the, deter the the relationship has hit, you know, new lows, um, the trading volumes are hitting new highs. I think it was around $690 billion last year in, in flows in both directions. So, um, the rhetoric is important. The direction of travel is worrying, but there's a lot to undergird this relationship that I think is going to keep it from, uh, from going off the rails you know, you never say never, but but I, I don't think it's right to kind of say this kind of invasion by China or military action is is inevitable or imminent. Yeah, let me let me follow up on that, because we've got good reader questions on this issue. So here's a question from Steve just asking directly, what are the chances of China invading Taiwan? And if that happens, what happens to markets? He's thinking about, you know, TSMC uh, companies that you know, are central to the global economy now? Well, the, the second part of the question is easy. It would be terrible uh, <laughs> if that happened. Uh, it would be particularly bad for the stock price of TSMC. Uh, but obviously, you know, on a more serious note, it, it would be a, a, a rupture, probably even greater than what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, um, because it, it transforms the Geo the, the, the geometry of alliances across Asia, right? You've just had Japan and Korea, for example, begin to reestablish a more uh, uh, cooperative relationship, uh, uh, but a much more aggressive threat from China, you know, would lead each of them to think about its armament trajectory and what it needs to do and may threaten the cooperation between the two of them. Obviously, the U.S., 
would feel like it would need to make some sort of a response uh, in Taiwan. How much of a response it could make is hard to know. Um, so again, if if it happens, it would be it would open up a whole lot of questions, uh, uh, maybe even greater questions than we're seeing than, than arose uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Having said that, I, I don't think it's obviously China's first choice in terms of solving this problem. Um, you know, we continue to see more aggressive talk from the Chinese leadership on this, but I don't think there is. Uh, uh, I, I don't. I don't think it's right to immediately take the Ukraine model and apply it. Apply it here because I think there are a lot more different ways where China can sort of establish a trajectory for Taiwan or a relationship ta for Taiwan than than um, than military uh, action. Military action, I think, on, on the part of China would would essentially suggest that they had lost the argument. Yeah. In many ways. Yeah. What, what do you make of these, this sort of move to rearm by Japan and the, the what's going on in South Korea? I mean, do, you know, does this, are you encouraged by that because it dampens the conflict or is this, you know, we are in a world awash with weapons? What, what What's your sort of frame for thinking about that? Well, you know, more weapons generally is not a good thing and is a sign of rising tensions. Um, having said that, obviously Japan uh Germany uh countries that have been tentative about rearming and about their own foreign policies beyond the scope of their own territory um is is probably a natural occurrence and in this case welcome I think from the United States point of view to have a more active resilient partner uh both in Korea and in Japan to, um, to help balance what is, uh, you know, undeniably a rapidly rising uh, Chinese military capability. And the hope is that that, you know, obviously keeps a balance and keeps uh, any of those weapons from, from being used. It was particularly interesting to see um, when President Xi was in Moscow uh, recently to see the Japanese prime minister make a visit to Kiev. I think that was um, welcome clearly for the Ukrainians, but it was also a sense that uh, it's not just the U.S., it's not just the U.S. and Europe, it's actually a global reaction to what's been going on in Russia and Ukraine, and that if China sides too much with Russia, um, it's probably going to be in a self-defeating um, narrative and uh, trajectory. Yeah. A uh, question from Sebastian. Do you see any risk in China's large position of treasury bonds if the tension escalates? I don't really, because I think, uh, I mean, the, the the fear is always that China will sell down its treasury bonds to um, retaliate for some political development. Uh, it, would, it would be very self-defeating for China to do that. Not only would its own holdings drop in value, uh, the disruption of financial markets, the disruption of the global economy, would be a clear uh, uh, headwind, would, would da do damage to the Chinese economy um, directly. I mean, I think, you know, even as China continues to grow and depend increasingly on its own internal market, which is natural for a country its size, the story of China's rise and uh, uh, development is really one of globalization and, you know, both depending on international markets for, for its exports, 
but also relying on international markets for its imports, particularly of raw materials, but increasingly um, more sophisticated things. And so uh, it would it's it's a it's not really a weapon that I think China uh, can use or or will use. It may start to diversify some of its holdings uh, to other to other assets. And we've seen that, uh, but it's very hard to replace U.S. Treasuries for their both liquidity and reliability uh, for holding your your savings. Yeah. Um, just a quick reminder to the audience that you can submit questions in our Q&A and I'll be happy to pose them to Christopher. Um, yesterday, speaking of weapons, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, gave speech, which she said the EU needs to de-risk from China. And one of the ways she wants to do that is something that I started thinking of as a defensive weapon system, which is by putting more outbound investment, outbound screening, excuse me, by putting more screening on outbound investments to China. This is something that the US is considering as well. Um, there's an executive order that folks have suggested will be coming from the Biden administration soon. So what do you think investors should think about these kinds of screens? Well, I mean, I think first of all, it feeds into the narrative I was trying to describe before, which is that the relationships are deteriorating. I think the um, Europeans had all things being equal, viewed the relationship with China as being much more um, commercial and trade and finance focused and been less concerned about the geopolitical or military angle of things. Um, again, I think because of Ukraine, they are reconsidering a lot of that. And so they have become more skeptical about China's intentions and therefore more careful about the, the political and security dimension of, of the trading relationship. So I think that's a, a, a natural thing to, to try and raise. Uh, it's very complicated to put it into practice uh, because choosing which investments to limit uh, particularly within Europe, if you limit an Italian uh, deal, uh, but don't do the same to a similar German deal, that creates frictions. But I think it's a reflection. I think if I were Xi Jinping or the Chinese leadership, it would make me concerned about you know where things are headed for me because I can you know uh, I can probably manage rising tensions with the U.S., but it's if if it's the U.S. plus Europe. Um, that becomes a much more difficult and complicated uh, set of decisions I need to balance. Yeah. Elizabeth wants us to discuss scenarios for disengaging with China. We need mm -hmm. their products and technology in order to reshore. Will the West be able to do so? Or do you think that China will be able to withhold supplies, make us hostages? Uh, and she wants to know what about all about all out cyber war? That's a fun one. Well, um, Again, the second one uh, may be easier to answer. All out cyber war would be bad. Uh, it is one of those things I think every business, every CEO, every government leader worries about, um, not just because it's not clear that anybody's systems are well protected, but there's no um, sort of doctrine of how a cyber war would uh, or could escalate. You know, many people have done studies around the similarities between cyber weapons and nuclear weapons because they are you know essentially um uh offering mutually assured destruction in some sense i mean obviously cyber is not the doesn't doesn't carry the the uh the the the, the, the physical damage that a, that a nuclear exchange does but but it really does you know 
if your systems get attacked and disabled, you are still able to respond uh, and do the same to the other side. So I think uh, the, the more we can talk about managing those risks with the Chinese, with the Russians, with the Iranians, who are also very capable in this, um, the, the better off we are. In terms of disengaging with China, I, I think it's very, very hard to contemplate how that would happen other than through a direct military conflict. So it's not clearly impossible because anything like that can happen. Um, the, the best historical parallel, I think, is the relationship between Germany and England before World War I, where they were essentially each other's biggest and best trading partners, um, notwithstanding the relationship that the two royal families had. Uh, and yet that didn't stop a war from breaking out. So you would never say that that economic relationship guarantees peace, um, but it would and should uh, allow cooler heads to prevail and understand that the damage um, uh, is, is going to be very much in both directions if hostilities break out. Yeah. We've had a couple of questions about the dollar uh, and the U.S. status as a global reserve currency. So here, here's one from Jack. Um, he mentions that China and Brazil, there was some news yesterday that they had agreed to conduct some business in yuan, China's currency. So do you see that as a step toward removing the dollar as a reserve currency? And I'll throw in there that there was some similar chatter about this when uh, around Saudi Arabia, uh, that, that maybe uh, they will sell their oil to China uh, denominated in Chinese currency. So what, what do you make of this? Well, uh, a couple of things. I mean, I think, again, with the rise of China as uh, a, a global economic power, it makes sense that its currency be, you know, flow more freely and become uh, both as, as a currency, but also a financial instrument denominated in that currency, a bigger part of the financial system. We've seen that. Um, it is still, for all of the headlines you see around it, you know, as a proportion of global reserves, I think still around 3%. So it's not it's not um, going to displace the dollar or the euro uh, anytime soon. Uh, uh, I would also say that, again, uh, if you're looking at what, where you're going to put your money, I mean, I, I think I, I get this question a lot. And my, uh, my answer is usually something along the lines of, if you had to take all of your money personally and put it in a single currency for the next 25 years and not touch it, are you really going to put it in the yuan? Or are you really going to put it in the, you know, the dollar remains sort of the most predictable um, asset with the most um, sophisticated set of financial products, the deepest markets, uh, the ones where you can store them safely for a long time and know that you'll get them back whenever you want them. Uh, will the yuan rise in terms of its, its usability? I think it will, and you'll see it in some of those transactions, but that doesn't really make it a reliable store of value with, and it's certainly until the Chinese open up their uh, current account more, uh, it's not going to be the kind of place where you figure, you know, I can put it there and I'll get it back whenever I want it. So, so here's the counter argument to your relatively rosy scenario from Todd. Given the inner turmoil politically in the U.S., how vulnerable are we to the risk of material, material dollar devaluation in the next 12 to 24 months? Well, the dollar, you know, and this gets back to how we let off our conversation. You know, when you uh, when you have a former president indicted um, uh, with more more criminal investigations pursuing him, you kind of look at that and say, "Gosh, do I really want to put my money in that kind of a country?" 
Um, but if you take a step back and look at the institutions behind it, both legal, um, financial, and then the economic vitality of the United States is the country that's generally the one filing the more, uh, you know, the most patents, um, showing that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that brings the, the, the more innovative companies onto the horizon and has done that again and again. Um, I think that's where you, uh, why you might want to not bet too quickly uh, uh, against the dollar. In terms of near-term uh, valuations, that will be driven much more by relative interest rate cycles than um, than I think anything in the political realm. Yeah, so we don't watch the Fed. Uh, a question from Anant, similar subject. Is there a possibility that Chinese exports to the US are going to drastically reduce in the near future, causing a reduction in dollar value? Uh, I don't see how that will happen other than through, you know, a significant recession in the U.S., uh, which is not our base case. But, uh, you know, again, Chinese U.S. trade, in spite of all the political turmoil, is been, you know, was dramatically up last year, both in both directions. Uh, and because China makes stuff that we want to buy, uh, I think we'll continue to buy it. We'll, we'll probably see more diversification away from uh, China, as they will diversify uh, in some ways away from us. If you are a producer of something that requires a supply, a part that comes from China, or requires a Chinese consumer to buy it, um, you probably want to start thinking about you know, new markets or new sources of supply, because the frictions are are growing, and you know tariffs aren't going to go away anytime soon. The potential, particularly if you're in the tech sector, of having new restrictions added on to whatever it is you produce or sell, um, uh, I think are, are likely to, to continue to rise. Interestingly, you've seen it on the other side where Chinese producers are looking at Mexico for places where they can invest and move their production facilities. Not anything high tech, because that's always going to face those kinds of um, uh, reviews that you mentioned before. But people who make furniture and car parts and uh, clothing are moving their production to to uh, to Mexico. They can benefit from the free trade zone that we have with Mexico. Uh, and so I think you'll see that diversification, but I don't think you'll see us completely stopping buying uh, any buying things from each other. Yeah. Thank you, Donald Trump for USMCA, right? Indeed. Um, indeed. But let's, um, uh, we're gonna. I want to touch on Israel briefly in a second, but one more follow-up here on this theme that we're talking about. A question from Lee: Given all that you've said today, what's your opinion about beginning investments in companies in the defense industry? Do you see them as possibly a steady performer in the future? It looks that way uh, again because of what we were saying before: the U.S. defense budget has been rising rapidly over the last few years. We have been encouraging, and we are seeing now a response from our European allies to increase their spending on defense. As you know, NATO had set a, a, a target for NATO members to spend at least 2% of their GDP on defense. And most, uh, most of the larger European countries have fallen short on that and they are rapidly increasing uh, their spending. And clearly um, we mentioned earlier what's going on in Japan and, and Korea. So, uh, so it does look like a, a sector that has a whole lot of tailwinds behind it right now. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask briefly about Israel because I think it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, Gabriel asks, regarding the political turmoil there, and he's referencing this sort of deep political fight uh, 
between the government of Benjamin Netanyahu and um, and his his own government and his political opponents over whether or not he can institute some far-reaching overhauls to the country's judicial system. Um, uh, he asks, uh, do you imagine any scenario where the situation could escalate into the international arena, um, perhaps uh, involving Israel's relationship with the United States? I think it's hard to see that happening, although you know the Middle East is one of those areas where that is so complicated and so uh, unpredictable, um, you know, it, it could certainly spread beyond, beyond Israel. You know, uh, we were talking about the escalation of rhetoric and extremism in the United States. I am not an expert on Israeli politics, but boy, it seems like, um, uh, we, we don't even come close to a lot of the things that they are having to contend with, uh, in Israel. I think, uh, because, and, and you know, and you do see China, Russia, the United States and others kind of trying to manage events uh, as they evolve in uh, in the Middle East. And obviously there are concerns about Iran's nuclear program, how the, the recent reestablishment of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, even though underlying tensions between those two countries, I think, remain high. Um, so there's a lot of unpredictability, a lot of fluidity that could escalate. What's really hard from an investor's point of view is to see when it might escalate or how the status quo could continue to bubble along with worrying headlines for many, many years. Um, or, you know, it's obviously a place where that could surprise us much sooner than that. Yeah, you you mentioned Iran too, which is another big global story that we probably have to get to in a, in a conversation like this. They are uh, arguably very close to being able to produce a nuclear weapon. Uh, the US government is saying something like, two weeks would be how long it would take them to do it if they really wanted to. I mean, that doesn't mean they're going to have a weapon by the end of April, but uh, but there's a lot of concern. Um, how concerned are you that, that we're headed for some sort of conflict uh, in the near term? I, I think it's very worrying. Uh, it's very worrying, but it, it has been worrying for uh, many months and indeed many years. Uh, you know, it's something, it's a, it's a risk that the um, Israeli government has been watching very closely. Uh, the U.S. government is watching very closely, and you know, more, maybe even more concerning is: are we aligned with our allies about how to handle uh, what would happen there? I think if you're an investor, you have to kind of assume that uh, Iran has that capability, or if it, or if it doesn't, you know, it's it may stop short of it, but with the ability to produce a nuclear weapon very quickly, um, and so. The task remains to, you know, how you manage that um, that balance as it develops. I think it's just very hard to expect that Iran is going to say, "Okay, we're not going to go ahead with this, or we're not going to we're going to give up this capability." Understanding the the relationships that it has with others in the region and the risks that it may face, I guess that's my way of saying this is something that may be inevitable. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with rather than hope that it doesn't happen or try and find a way to uh, diffuse it. All right, I'm going to give the last question here to Steve, who is doing my job nicely for me. Uh, he asks, looking forward, what do you see for the global order five years from now and its impact on U.S. stock markets? Well, how much time do we have left? <laughs> uh, We're over that's time, a, that's a That's a big question, of course. I think... Yeah. Uh, the, the thing about political risk is it always dominates our headlines and it always, uh, particularly lately, 
is more worrying than it is reassuring. Uh, and so you get an event and markets sell off and you get another event and they sell off. And then investors kind of say, well, is it going to affect my dividend this year or is it going to really disrupt the cash flows of this particular company? And then realizes that, you know, gosh, we could have, you know, uh, another crisis that we didn't talk about is is North Korea and its launch of nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. Um, that used to get everybody worried and it still should get everybody worried, but it doesn't necessarily have a direct implication on stock markets. So um, while I think it's important to keep all these things in mind and understand the rising sets of risks and what I describe as this slow unraveling of the global order, um, most investments and most investment returns are focused much more on those, uh, as I say, dividends and cash flows and growth prospects. And that I think is going to determine the outcome much more than, uh, than anything else in the next five years. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, Christopher, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, thank you to the audience uh, for tuning in for your great questions. Please join us again on Monday when my colleagues Lauren Rublin and Ben Levison will be here to speak with uh, founder and managing partner of Fair Lead Strategies, Katie Stockton, on the outlook for financial markets, uh, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.